Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 84th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Well, 2023 has started off with a bang, to say the least. Between the carbon plan order, Duke's rolling blackouts, the start of the long legislative session, and ramping up efforts to strengthen the state's building codes. And on today's episode, though, We're diving in specifically to the rolling blackouts we recently experienced here in the state. There's been a lot of attention on this issue, given the unprecedented nature of Duke relying on short planned outages to help keep the grid afloat. We're diving in with an expert on generation and reliability to talk about exactly what happened, but we've got a few short updates to share first. For our attorneys listening in, NCSEA recently announced the dates for our 2023 continuing legal education event focused on clean energy in the Southeast. If you haven't attended this event in the past, it's the go-to for anything clean energy policy and regulation within North Carolina and beyond. This year, in particular, we'll be focused on HOAs and rooftop solar, the South Carolina RTO study, FERC Order 2222, and of course, the carbon plan. This is a great way for attorneys to earn six of their required CLE credit hours and for everyone else to stay up to date on everything going on in clean energy. This year's event will take place on February 23rd in Raleigh. Make sure to mark your calendars and register today at energync.org. The legislature is back in session. The North Carolina General Assembly began the 2023 long session on Wednesday, January 11th, with the swearing-in of the House and Senate members for the current biennium. We also received committee assignments and can finally announce the Senate Agriculture, Energy, and Environment Committee will be chaired by Senators Jackson, Sanderson, and Barnes. On the House side, utilities chairs will be announced by the end of the month. Stay tuned as we'll be sure to share updates on any proposed pieces of energy-related legislation. Okay, on to the show. As many of our listeners know, North Carolina and the Southeast experienced a series of rolling outages right around the year-end holidays fairly unexpectedly, as the utilities responsible did not communicate with ratepayers about impending outages until the morning of. On today's episode, we're bringing on a guest who has been diving in deep to the topic to find out what really occurred, why it happened, and what can be done in the future to prevent similar outages from occurring again. So with that, let's get into the show. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our guest is the executive director of the Southern Renewable Energy Association, where he works closely with large-scale renewable developers across the South. He focuses quite a bit of time and energy on public service commissions and integrated resource planning by utilities across the Southeast. He previously worked for the organization, the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy, and has more than a decade's worth of experience in the clean energy sector. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Simon Mann, Executive Director with the Southern Renewable Energy Association to the pod. Simon, welcome to the podcast. You bet. Glad to be here. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit more about the Southern Renewable Energy Association and your role with the organization? Yeah, sure. So we are a nonprofit trade association focused on utility scale renewables, wind, solar, battery storage, 
hydrogen transmission uh, throughout the Southeast, uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Kentucky, and everywhere south of there. Uh, we focus predominantly on uh, regulatory issues at state public service commissions, integrated resource planning, uh, legislative issues throughout the region, and then also transmission planning at MISO and in the Southeastern Regional Transmission Planning Processes. And I'm the executive director, so I'm in charge. You have quite a bit on your plate and a lot to keep up with, but you have just built up and amassed quite a, a Twitter following just because your organization and you have been uh, just so in the weeds and on top of what's going on within the clean energy space across the the Southeast. And so I uh, really appreciate all of the hard work that you and your organization are doing. So let's get right into the story of this episode, uh, which is about rolling blackouts. So back in late December, around Christmas Eve, utilities across the Southeast, including TVA and Duke Energy, experienced rolling blackouts, knocking out power to as many as a half a million customers here in North Carolina. These service interruptions were attributed to the cold weather we experienced associated with Winter Storm Elliott. Granted, these utilities did have about 10 or so days to prepare for the cold weather and knew this was coming. So why were they caught flat-footed and what led to these outages? Well, so the story really goes back uh, a number of years and then months and then days ahead of the storm. So there were warning signs all the way back to at least 2014 that our generators throughout the Southeast were not prepared for the, the cold weather snaps like this. There was a polar vortex back in 2014 where some of the generators in the Southeast were negatively affected by that winter storm event. Then in 2018, there was a similar winter storm that occurred that caused some pretty significant outages throughout the Southeast from the power plants uh, because of low gas pressures, coal plants tripped offline, natural gas plants couldn't turn on. Uh, there were significant problems with utilities being able to forecast accurately the demand that they needed uh, to serve. And there was a FERC and NERC investigation into the Southeast and, and MISO South as well back in 2018. And then we had Winter Storm Uri in 2021, where most of the focus, of course, was what happened in Texas, but there were impacts in places like TVA and Southern Company and MISO South as well, where, again, we had uh, impacts on the generation side and significant load demand in, in our region. And then you fast forward to here this year, the NERC and the uh, CERC, the Southeastern uh, Energy Reliability Council, issued reports about winter reliability and, and made announcements or, or concerning statements that there could be problems in the Southeast if a major winter storm came through. And they issued those reports in September and also in November. And then, as you said, there were uh, announcements made by at least Texas and major pipeline operators at least a week or two ahead that this major storm was going to go through and that folks needed to get prepared. And so it's really multiple years of warning that things could get bad in the Southeast, that we needed to get prepared, and that... Uh, Really, it was a demand forecast problem in the Southeast, and then also a number of our generators uh, could not operate in the extreme cold weather. 
So you mentioned Texas. I am curious, is this at all similar to what happened in ERCOT about two years ago with their winter weather that came through that part of the country? It's very similar. And part of it is, again, in Texas, they had extreme demand, but they, they didn't have enough generation to meet that demand. And, and so in that, in that same vein, we had that same problem in places like the Tennessee Valley Authority and, and Duke Energy over in the Carolinas. The difference with, with TVA and with Duke is that they're better connected with their neighbors. And so the power outages weren't as bad as Texas, and they didn't last as long as what happened with Texas. And so I think most, hopefully most folks on, on your audience know that Texas is mostly a, a pretty islanded grid. They're not very well connected with their neighbors, but TVA and Duke were able to import significant amounts of power from the mid-continent independent system operator, uh, the, the grid operator to the north and to the, the west for TVA, and then also PJM, which was the grid operator to the north and to the east. And so by being able to import significant amounts of power for multiple days, TVA and Duke were able to avoid the, the significant outages that, that Texas was able to have. And basically, if it weren't for MISO and PJM, we would have had a much worse disaster in the Southeast, much like Texas had last year. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier, this isn't the first time the Southeast has experienced cold weather similar to this. So what was different about this time than in previous times? I, you know, I, I can recall personally being here in North Carolina and having ice storms or snowstorms come through, but I don't remember the rolling blackouts or outages being as significant as we saw most recently around the, the holidays this year. It's hard to say at this point. So keep in mind, so today is January 5th and the storms and the blackouts happened on December 23rd. And at this point, you and I, we're still outsiders kind of peering in from the outside looking in. We still don't have data. We don't have information on individual plants, how they all operated. Uh, there were some general announcements from TVA and from Duke and, and from some other companies uh, here and there throughout the region about what power plants went offline or what, what were derated. Um, but we do not have the full story about what was going on in the region. And we won't probably for a couple of months um, as utilities are making repairs, going through and, and double checking what actually happened. Um, for the past week or so, I've been pulling data from the Energy Information Administration, trying to figure out what publicly in available information I can get. And even the EIA data are not fully available, and some of the data are, are frankly incorrect. And so we have to wait for the data to be uploaded, to be corrected, for the utilities to provide correct information. And then there also are, are investigations that have to, to be conducted. And really, those investigations are people making phone calls of who called who and when in order to ensure that power was was flowing what generators turned off why did they turn off specifically 
this is going to be a month long, many month long process of finding out what exactly went wrong, when it went wrong. And we're still very early in the the stages of trying to figure that out. And so, but at this point, it looks like the demand forecast from TVA and Duke was significantly off by somewhere between five to 10%, much worse than places like MISO or PJM. And you mix that. So they were totally unprepared for the amount of power that they needed at the time when they needed it. And then you added in the difficulty of being able to serve that demand with generators that could not provide the power. So the, the coal units, the natural gas units, and even the oil units that they switched to because the natural gas pipeline pressure started to drop throughout the entire region because there was such high demand on natural gas throughout the region that many of the companies, uh, TVA, Duke, Southern companies, switched from natural gas to oil to preserve the pressure within the natural gas pipeline infrastructure. And uh, we can see, at least through some of the preliminary data available, that coal, gas, and oil all struggled throughout the storm. So let's dive in a little bit more on the the demand side. You had mentioned that Duke's and TVA's demand projections were off between 5 and 10%. Was there a higher load demand due to more electric appliances like heat pumps and electric vehicles on the grid than ever before? Or what was the discrepancy there? Yeah, so it's hard to say at this point what exactly was causing the demand to be so high, it was exceptionally cold. So here in Little Rock, we got down to about five degrees, which is incredibly cold. So our heat pump was running nonstop. Throughout the Southeast, we do have a lot more electric heating than uh, than other heat sources. Um, we have seen more electric vehicles increase throughout the Southeast. Um, but at the same time, we don't have the data to really show that it was a particular appliance or a particular type of appliance that caused uh, the blackouts to occur. Uh, keep in mind that within the Southeast, while we we have high electric heat usage and, and we are getting more electric vehicles, you still have other areas like MISO and PJM, which are also having high electric vehicle penetration. So with PJM, you've got places like Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., New Jersey, Maryland, places where they're in, in MISO, you've got Illinois, you've got St. Louis, you've got these major metropolitan areas that are buying significant amounts of electric vehicles, and yet their grids did not go down. And so it's hard to really pinpoint and say it was solely because of electric vehicles or or home heating or or anything like that. Um, It is certainly easy to say um, we, we do need more energy efficiency throughout the Southeast. That's, that's been true for decades Um, but again, we do need more data. We need more analysis as to what occurred and the path forward is going to be fairly complex. We need to have 
multiple types of, of generation resources that are going to be available in order to serve the load. But again, being better connected to our neighbors is really what saved us from a much worse disaster. So better transmission connections with our neighbors is going to be helpful. And from there, we will be able to figure out how to dive into demand and dealing with the demand side of the equation as well. And it's also interesting not to be too speculative here that that peak demand in in Duke territory occurred Christmas Eve morning, uh, early morning, even before sunrise. And that was a Saturday in which many businesses or industrial processes weren't even operating uh, so it's it's interesting to note that, but then again, it's it's probably hard to tell kind of where that demand was coming from without the full picture of the data that is available. And so we'll hope over the coming weeks and months that here in North Carolina, the Utilities Commission will be able to access that data and share it publicly with, with stakeholders like NCSEA and others uh, so we can get the, the full analysis and determine kind of what the path forward looks like. So there's been a lot of chatter about the generation resources that may have been responsible for the inability to meet peak demand. So based on your initial review, and I know you talked a little bit about this in looking at some of the EIA data, what generation assets may have been impacted by the cold weather that may have not been producing at their peak capacity? Yeah, so the EIA data definitively show that the the coal units and the natural gas units and potentially some of the, the dual fuel units that switch over to oil may have not performed as expected. And the utilities directly from Duke and from TVA very explicitly have said that a number of their coal and natural gas units did not perform as expected. And so we know that for sure. Something else that we saw or had heard about or or knew occurred prior to the storm were that there were several nuclear reactors that were not online uh, before the storm came through. And so the Grand Gulf nuclear reactor in Intergy, Mississippi, was not available prior to the storm. The Farley nuclear reactor in Alabama from Southern Company was not online. And then one of the Robinson nuclear reactor units, I believe in South Carolina, was also not online during the storm. And so those units, had they been online, would have been a lot more helpful because in, in these storms, every megawatt matters. And so it would have been a lot easier to serve the demand because in many of these hours, these companies were importing thousands of megawatts of power from neighboring regions, from MISO, from PJM. And so it was really important over multiple days to be able to get other resources from out of the region but then also for other resources like solar to be available over the course of multiple days. Uh, One of the things that Duke Energy has said publicly was that as they were using more and more gas over the multiple day event, the pressure in the gas pipelines began to drop pretty quickly. And we can see in the data that the companies that had the ability to switch fuels from natural gas to oil started to do that around the 23rd. And when they started to do that, it was also when the solar resources really started to pick up. And so it was really helpful for solar to be there over the course of three days so that it provided the ability to lessen the pressure 
on the gas infrastructure um, because the more you use gas, you're causing uh, an extra withdrawal on the gas pipeline. And that was clearly a concern for a number of the utilities because they were starting to switch fuels from natural gas over to oil. So to ask that same question in a different way, were renewables responsible for this service interruption that we saw here in in the Carolinas and uh, across the Southeast? Oh, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no. And, and in fact, things would have been much, much worse without the renewables. So in some of these places, the Carolinas had something like three gigawatts worth of solar that was online during the solar peak within the Southern Company territory. So Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, they also had about three gigawatts worth of solar that, that was peaking during the middays. And even though those midday outputs, that wasn't the, the quote unquote, the worst part of the storm uh, or the highest demand uh, for energy on, on those particular days, the systems were still pulling massive amounts of power from their neighbors. And so if not for those solar facilities being available, it's hard to say if those utilities could have been able to pull any more megawatts from their neighbors. Uh, the transmission system is, is not infinite. And so if they could have pulled more megawatts to stop the blackouts, they would have, but they couldn't because the transmission system is, is limited. And so it's important to have, like I said, every megawatt available matters. And when you have three gigawatts of solar available to provide power pretty steadily over the course of multiple days, that also helps provide support to the natural gas system, that's really significant. And then in addition to not only the local solar, but when you're importing a significant chunk of power from MISO, MISO has an awful lot of wind power that performed exceptionally well during the cold snap. Because if you think about it, the winter storm that came through was very, very windy. And so they were experiencing exceptionally strong winds right when we needed a lot of wind power. And so as we were importing low cost, lower cost resources that weren't dependent on a fuel system, we were importing wind, um, it really helped out the Southeast because we were relying on an outside market like that. And one thing of note as well is uh, just earlier this week, the North Carolina Utilities Commission held an initial hearing uh, with Duke to determine, uh, at least at a high level, what might have occurred here in, in the Carolinas. And, and Duke, in that hearing themselves, had mentioned that solar performed as expected. And and you had mentioned it, and, and so did Duke, that you know the, the peak demand that we saw on Christmas Eve came just before sunrise. So you know, solar wasn't at full operating capacity, but it does create the justification or argument that if we were to have more storage assets here in North Carolina, that would have further enabled us to be able to use those available megawatts throughout the course of the day. And unfortunately, that's just not an asset that we have in North Carolina right now. Much of is is storage. And I know that's something that many advocates, including uh, NCSEA, 
uh, have been asking for as part of the carbon plan proceedings here as we consider what the, the future grid looks like in North Carolina. And it's it's important to note that those storage assets could have come in handy and are something that probably wouldn't have seen those same service interruptions that other fossil resources had seen. So just you know, at a high level, why why were some so quick to jump on the train of of blaming renewables for for these issues within the region? It's an easy scapegoat, and it's I don't know. It's just easy for folks to blame stuff that they don't understand, or they're not willing to wait for for some of the data. Like I said, and even today, some of the data that we have is incomplete, and so we we really need places like the the North Carolina Utilities Commission, the the South Carolina Public Service Commission, frankly, all the the public service commissions in the Southeast, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky. We need all of the public service commissions to open their own investigations into what actually happened because each utility in the Southeast had a role to play in, in what actually happened and all the utilities had some level of failure and some level of something happened. And even if some utility had no problems, it would be helpful for a commission to know that so that they could share that story with other states, right? And so all the commissions, all the state public service commissions need to open their own investigations TVA is in a unique spot because they don't have a public service commission that regulates them. And so in that case, it's the TVA board that needs to do the investigation. And there's this additional possibility that the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee or the Energy and Public Works Committee needs to open their own investigation as well. And so it's not enough to let the utilities run their own investigations and then come up with some report and say, Yes, we could have done a little bit better. Now, you know, we're sorry. We'd like to buy some new software and then then we'll we'll do a better job next time. That's simply just not good enough. Um, we saw what happened with Winter Storm Uri and Texas and the amount of investigations, the amount of scrutiny that went into there. There were so many firings that occurred in in winter storm Uri with CEOs that were fired the you know the head of of ERCOT was dismissed the public utility commissioners from Texas were all they all resigned from from that disaster you know you mentioned the uh the the meeting that happened at the utility commission in North Carolina where duke uh, officials compared what almost happened here to the 2003 Northeastern blackout because Duke almost caused the entire Eastern interconnect to shut down. That's much more severe than what we all knew up until that point. And so for us to have found that out just publicly two days ago is pretty severe. And for our state regulators, for our federal regulators to not do a full investigation 
really puts the entire system and all of the customers at risk. So I know we're, we're coming off of, you know, maybe just a week or, or so removed from, from these rolling blackouts, but what solutions are potentially at hand to ensure we don't continue to see more of these outages within the region? Yeah, well, and so the, the first thing, though, as I've been talking about, is we have to do the investigation first. And from that investigation, we should come up with some some really good recommendations. But it's pretty clear that communications from TVA and from Duke were not good. Within the TVA region, there was some muddled communications about a step 50 and 100 step plan that some of the local power companies had evidently never heard that this plan even existed. I certainly have never heard of this this leveled type plan and what that actually means in terms of what customers to shut off. Duke explained uh, to the utility commission that they were having software program problems and that they were manually turning on and off certain customers. So communications have to improve from TVA and Duke down to their customers, down to their their specific load. I, I think that's that's a very high priority. That that was a very high priority found out of the winter storm URI investigations that ERCOT needed to be doing a much better job communicating publicly about what, what was going on in real time with decision makers directly with customers. From there, we got better apps. We got uh, more social media uh, attention from ERCOT. It would be really helpful to have more data transparency directly from TVA and from Duke about what exactly is going on within their system. And so those are some very basic, simple things that would be helpful. You can very easily go to MISO. You can go to PJM. You can go to SPP's website and see in real time how their systems are, are doing. If you go to Duke's website or TVA's website, you can't. And so there's no way for a any customer to really understand how those systems are operating on a day-to-day basis. Whereas in the organized markets, in, in RTOs, you as a customer are more empowered to better understand what's going on, how safe is the system, is my refrigerator going to be, be on for the next day or two. But clearly having a, a system run on thermal generation units that are susceptible to cold is a real flaw in the system. Not not being able to call on generators that we think are firm when they really truly aren't is a flaw in our assumptions and in our integrated resource plans and in our resource adequacy assumptions throughout the Southeast. Um, so, so we'll have to reassess how we do our resource planning, whether or not those uh, facilities should get full accreditation. And then diversifying our resources to things like solar, to batteries, to wind energy resources, to hydrogen, and then looking at the demand side of the equation, trying to figure out, are there ways of promoting energy efficiency, demand response, distributed energy resources? And then to top it all off, uh, transmission, improving transmission on the regional basis, connecting better with our neighbors on the interregional basis. 
and then asking the big questions of should we be joining RTOs because the RTOs did not have the massive failures that Duke and TBA had. And so we need to be asking those questions of if the RTOs did not have those failures, maybe we need to be joining those bigger systems so that our customers are better protected. Those are all great points and, and really good questions that you bring up as well. And I know that the the communication piece is something that a lot of people in North Carolina have been spending a lot of time focusing on, given that most folks weren't aware that the utility might be moving forward with rolling outages until the morning of. And that's a real challenge, especially for people right around the holidays when people are, are gathering in families' home. And it seems like, uh, for all intents and purposes, given the short notice that the utility really was caught flat-footed if they're communicating out that short uh, ahead of time. And so it's it's a real challenge, and I think it raises a lot of questions and uh, puts, a, puts a spotlight on the utility industry uh, here in the Carolinas and in the Southeast. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to have you on the podcast during this inflection point. I really do think that 2023, between these rolling outages and the, the carbon plan order that was just released from the North Carolina Utilities Commission, uh, is going to set the, the, the path forward for uh, North Carolina and the electricity sector for many years to come. So, Simon, thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. And my key takeaway from today's episode is that these outages really upended the perception that fossil fuel resources like natural gas and coal are firm, dispatchable, and dependable. For quite some time, this argument has been used as a way to delay the rollout of renewable resources that opponents pin as variable and unreliable, when in fact, if we were to have had more of those resources online paired with storage during these outages, we may have been able to mitigate or eliminate the impacts altogether. For that reason, many interveners and advocates have proposed more renewable assets on the grid here in North Carolina via the carbon plan proceedings. Stay tuned as we'll be sure to provide more updates on the response to the outages, especially in the light of FERC and NERC investigations into the matter. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners and episode 84 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.